Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's my pleasure to have Mike Simmons, who is the founder of Catalyst Sale. Mike, would you give a quick 60 to 90 second introduction to who you are and your journey thus far? Awesome. Hey, Marcus, it's great to be with you. I'm a guy who lives in Arizona, out in the States. I have an operation, uh, background in operations, implementation success today. They'd call that customer success and sales. And a couple of years ago, uh, launched a company uh, called Catalyst Sale. And what gets me excited is helping people get better at sales. So, Mike, what are the four most common questions people ask you about how they can be more successful and grow their sales? The most common one and the one that drives me absolutely nuts is, can you teach me how to close? Ah. And it's some iteration of that. It's, can you teach me how to close better? Can you teach my team how to close better? We don't close as well as we should. Any of those kind of things. And it drives me absolutely nuts because? when I hear that question. Because? Well, because how many people really want to be closed? Like, I, I don't know how many people wake up and are like, you know what, today I want to get closed by somebody. Mm-hmm. And it just, so it just, it's, I don't understand why we feel as sales professionals, we feel like that is, or people who are starting to get into sales feel like that's the magic thing. So that is one question that drives me absolutely insane. We, and there's we'll definitely revisit that. Okay. So other questions that they ask you? Another question that they ask is, get this from founders a lot, but it's the, hey, I can sell the product. And this is not a horrible one, but it's, it's um, I can sell the product. My team just can't sell the product the way that I do. How can I teach them how to sell the product the way that I do? And you know, short or spoiler alert, you can't. But that question around, how do I get my team to sell this thing the same way that I do? I, I always love to respond to that with, did you hire them that way or did you make them that way? It's mind-boggling that we think that people can be us. We don't have the same experiences. Uh, now, some of us might have shared experiences that bring us closer together where we might have a similar kind of style. And if you hire that similar kind of style, you might get yourself into a situation where you're not going to be as productive as you can be uh, or as effective as you can be, and you become really biased and you create insane ruts inside your organization. But... Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to turn a square peg into something round unless you sandpaper the heck out of it or start yeah. doing some cutting and drilling and 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 whatnot. And I'm not a woodworking guy, but it's just it's that square peg into a round hole doesn't always work. Maybe maybe you don't need the round hole. Well, and it seems that my definition of DIY comes into its own. Don't involve yourself. That's, yep. that's the very definition of DIY. It's okay, a perfect so we'll, we'll definitely come back to that. And yep. uh, your, your third question? The third question, how do we make this work faster? Like, what can we do to get all of this to happen faster? Because you know, we all, you know, as leaders inside organizations, want to have things go fast, but we don't necessarily know whether or not things can can really actually move faster. We, we miss on the customer side or we miss on uh, some things on our side. So the third question is usually related to speed. Like how can we make this all go faster? And the and fourth that, question? 
Yeah, the fourth one is is probably around things like how do we avoid discounting? It feel it seems like the reps inside my organization tend to lean toward or feel like we've got to come together with some kind of a discount in order to get deals to move forward. So the last one would be related to discounting. Okay, so how do we close more? How do we get them to sell like me? How do we get this whole thing to move faster? And how do we prevent discounting? So let's tackle each one of those uh, one by one. The closing issue, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, No one wants to be closed. Your job is to have the prospect close themselves, have them surrender the order. So why is it, do you think, that in this day and age, when we know that we hate it when salespeople do it to us, there are so many managers and business leaders out there that fixate on closing? I think those who have done this long enough and have experience know that there's a disconnect between whether or not people like it when this happens or you know that knows that know that the customer doesn't like to be closed and know that it's not a an activity that is done to somebody it's the ones who are new to it who look at it and say i've read this book and this book says this or i saw this movie and the movie says do this or i saw whatever and it looks like that that there's this allure, there's this belief that some sales reps out there have this magical capability to, and I you know, joke about it in you know, the context of cars, where they ask, you know, would you like floor mats with this? Or what's it going to take to put you in a car you know, like this today? These assumptive close type techniques or any other closing technique, they're just rough. And they're more about us as a more about us asking for business. And I, I think it's okay to ask for business, but that ask for business has to happen after a number of things have happened. Like if we built a relationship in a way that supports that next step being that we are going to enter into a business relationship instead of it just being an opportunity to enter into a business relationship. So my view on that is that it is we should look at the the process as a series of events that lead toward a business outcome, whether it's a positive business outcome or a negative business outcome, negative business outcome, moving into that closed loss move. As far as why we do it, I think it's just, I think it's an unknown thing. It's a, it, there's people look at it. It could be confidence. It, it could be a belief that somebody does something better than you. I think people believe that that is something that good sales reps do and i would i would challenge i would challenge that i think alec baldwin has an awful lot to answer for if any of you have not yet watched glenn gary glenn ross great film awful awful advertisement for the sales profession and he is among the worst examples of sales management you will ever come across it's awesome Saturday Night Live did a skit on this, you know, another show in the States where they, and you can find it on YouTube if you look, always be cobbling. And it's in Santa's workshop. And it's, it's <laughs> Alec Baldwin in that same character, staying on top of people for, you know, you're building or, you know, cobbling their, cobbling their shoes. So yeah, it's one of those things that people just make fun of. Yet, for whatever reason, we still think it's something we should do. And I, I just, I think it's a, a mess. We, we always teach that you should always be contracting. You need to reach agreement and co-develop with your prospect exactly what it is that they want 
and they are willing to invest in. And the problem is that salespeople often are motivated, not in necessarily intentionally or maliciously, but by their selfish self-interest. No one wants to be sold. We all love to buy. We hate to be sold. And the problem is that selling is actually something that happens with your ears and with effective questioning. It's not about the product. It's not about the service. It's not about whatever it is that your company does. No one in the history of humanity ever has or ever will buy your products. They're means to an end. And this then comes to your next point, which is how do we get them to sell like the founder, the owner, the boss? And so, again, my question here is, given what you've seen over the last 25 years, how often do you see that the managers and the bosses recruit in their own image only weaker? It's common that people do it. And yet we continue to hear about and see and experience the importance of diversity, diversity and thought as a way to help drive creativity and innovation inside organizations. Yet we still tend to hire folks who will do things the way that we've we've done them or have a similar background or have a similar set of experiences or have some consistency in the way that they go through the interview process that makes them feel like this is someone who fits the mold of the people that I've got inside inside the organization. And this one, it goes even beyond. So there's first, there's the hiring piece where they bring people in. Whether or not they bring those people into the organization that actually to, that look like them, sound like them, act like them, ask questions like them, or are completely different, they bring them into the organization and then they turn around and they try to make them sell like they would sell the product. And what they forget is they're the founder. They're the person who has the passion behind the problem that exists in the marketplace, who developed a solution to help solve that problem. And the person who's coming in and is buying into the idea or getting involved in the journey does not necessarily have that same set of experience or expertise. So to be able to sell like the founder is really hard unless you're the founder. And I don't think it's as much, Marcus, about the hiring piece, because I think they could hire people who are just like them and want them to sell just like they do and still miss on it. And the reason they would miss on it is they don't, the new sales rep doesn't really know what product development looks like inside the organization, what's on the roadmap six to 12 to 24 months down the road that are not actually on the physical roadmap, but they're inside the vision of what the, of the, from an organization perspective. They also don't have the same level of flexibility that the founder does or someone else inside the organization has related to, oh, yes, I know I've got a little bit of creativity here that I can apply. And when I hear something come up from a customer, I can ask another set of questions. I think one of the challenges that happens here is founders will go through the process and sales leaders will do this. This is not just a focused on people who have started companies, but Folks will build out templates, they will build out scripts, they will build out this list of things that reps should do, and then they ask the rep to go in and deliver that inside an organization. And as soon as I start talking about things that I'm not familiar with, I start talking in somebody else's voice, I start 
doing things that are not in my nature, using someone else's language, I lose that genuine connection that I've got between the customer and me, which goes back to the whole close piece that you were talking about in the relationship component. If I'm not being me, if I'm not being transparent, if I'm not engaging in a way that makes sense for me, it's really hard for me to build that rapport with a customer. So the sell like me piece, it's, it could be a hiring thing. I think it's more of a mentality thing though, because there's this belief of, look, I can sell this stuff. How come you can't sell this stuff? And kind of go through and say, okay, well, let's deconstruct the problem that we're trying to solve for and work toward that. Well, I think it points to the third question that you raised, which is how do we accelerate this? Because I think very often what the sales leaders are not doing is then looking at, first of all, they're looking at the wrong end of the problem because I I suspect what they're looking for is some kind of magic bullet or technique, but they're not spending enough time in the candidate design in recruitment. Then they're not spending enough time in pre-onboarding and onboarding. Once they've onboarded, they're not spending enough time on training, on coaching, on mentoring, on field visits, on accountability. And they're not looking in the right place, which is the mirror for the answer to that third question. So again, given that they've all been, they've probably all endured that kind of management. And many of them will have set up in business because they've said, I've had enough of dealing with these people. I know I can do it better myself. Why did they then do what was done to them, to their own people? There are a number of different reasons why that piece comes up. One of the most common reasons why that comes up is because the pressure that they feel inside their organization. So you get into a situation where this happens to all of us. When we get into a situation where all of a sudden um, we're in a crisis and the intensity of the situation amplifies or gets excited. And then all of a sudden we start moving forward with things without pausing and asking a question, just taking a a moment just to stop and observe the things that are around us. And John Boyd, who is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, came up with a, a framework, a model called the OODA loop, which is observe, orient, decide, and act. A looping process that helped accelerate decision-making processes for uh, fighter pilots. And if we, as sales professionals, as sales leaders, as leaders inside an organization, could just take a a page out of Boyd's book, observe the situation, orient ourselves, make a decision, and take action, we could reduce some of the biases that will get in the way, which is, hey, when I was a rep, this is how I would do it. And then you force or you imprint that on somebody. Or you get yourself into a situation where you start to make your problems the customer's problems, trying to accelerate things because it's an end of month thing, or it's an end of quarter thing, or it's an end of year thing. I mean, most of the people who purchase stuff in the SaaS market know you're better off purchasing something at the end of a quarter or at the end of a year. It's And because there's going to be some kind of intensity that's out there related to the customer or the, excuse me, the provider wanting to close a quarter strong, heck, even close a month strong or close year strong. So there'll be some other incentives there. And this is where discounting 
comes into effect. And I can tell you that if you're out there and you're providing a discount at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, the end of the year, my expectation as a buyer is that I'm going to get that discount after that timeline follows through because you were willing to give it away at that price before. There was something that changed inside your market that supported you being able to provide that discount. So just be really careful about that kind of that kind of piece. I know we just transitioned a little bit into the into the into the next one here, but that move faster piece is not the way that you move fast is by moving smooth. And that's a special ops thing. So, you know, it's uh slow is smooth, smooth is fast is something that comes from the special operations community. If you can operate in a way that's deliberate, asking the right questions, engaging the customer at the right point in time, understanding what their specific need is, understanding what challenges they have related to budget cycle, things like fiscal year, you can start to accelerate pieces. If you make it all about you, all about your onboarding, all about your, your product, all about your marketing, all about the things that you solve for, how you solve it, what you're going to do is you're going to create confusion and you're going to start to slow things down in the process because you're going to be guessing a lot. You're just pitching information rather than taking a pause, asking a couple of questions, and then delivering information in the context of what's, of what's important to the customer, which will help accelerate things. That's where the speed comes from. You, you've touched on a number of issues which are very close to my heart. The first thing is that if you have a strong sales pipeline, you have no need to then do fireside sales at the end of the quarter or the selling period. And each time you capitulate by offering discounts or there's a statement like, that's expensive, there's no question mark at the end of it, and responding with, well, we can knock 15% off, you've just told them that there's probably more fat to be paired away as well. And salespeople educate buyers to expect discounts. Um, You only have to look at retail. Uh, Retailers have created a rod for their own back. They used to be a spring sale and a January sale. Now they're sales every month, every quarter. And you're expecting bigger and bigger discounts. And you see it in tech, where at the end of the selling period, there's a huge pressure And managers put salespeople under enormous pressure to go back with stupid offers. I was coaching a client a couple of weeks back, and he was pulling his hair out because one of his bosses or his boss was telling him to go and offer an 80% discount before the customer was ready to buy. Now, then the customer said no, because that's what they were going to do. But he knows that as soon as um, they're ready to buy, they're going to expect an 80% discount which means that no one is served well um, because now for the next three or five years, they're going to be operating at 20% of where they should have been. And in order to, I mean, if you make 30% margin and you discount by 10%, you have to sell twice as much the next time in order to stand still. Imagine how much harder you have to work if you're giving away 80%. And this particular company is tens of millions behind every quarter Uh, because of this discounting uh, philosophy. So the antidote, first of all, is make sure prospecting is a daily activity and you focus on filling the top of the funnel with quality prospects, moving them through with sufficient velocity so that they don't end up bulging at the top of the bottom and getting constipated, making sure that you have three to five times more at the qualified moving to closable stage, and that's the other metric, and make sure that you're measuring first to second meeting conversions because 
what we see so often is one out of eight first meetings only uh, convert to a second. The other seven don't. That means 88% of your marketing lead uh, generation activity is wasted. Now, that's a travesty. And you then see why organizations start believing that it's about the money because they've created this vicious cycle and, and this spiral to the bottom. So let's move on to the three questions they should ask, but they don't. Yeah. So if I could just make a couple of comments on what you just shared, because I think it's really important and really we need to reinforce this. These are foundational principles, that foundational ideas and concepts that you've just shared, Marcus. The ability to ask effective questions is critical. If we don't ask effective questions, how can we gather information that's important to the customer? Yet most of us as leaders push information forward. And we'll get to the, the three questions that they should be asking, that we should be asking in our business. But asking questions, clarifying next steps, which if we go back to that first question around closing, that's what that's really what closing is. It's you clarify next steps and then you hold people accountable to those next steps and you hold yourself accountable to those next steps. So on both sides of the equation, your customer has next steps, you have next steps. And I would challenge everybody out there, if you go into a meeting without a call plan, and that call plan, if you go into a meeting without a call plan, understanding who's going to be in the room, knowing what your objectives are, knowing what the customer's objectives are, and having a plan to get toward a set of desired next steps, you're making a mistake and you are going to slow down your process, which is touches on this move faster. It's not overly prescriptive. Go ahead. I'd go further. I would say it is an act of gross misconduct to turn up to a sales meeting with a prospect without a plan, without having rehearsed and without clearly knowing what the next steps need to be in order to advance. After the first transgression, it should be a sackable offense. I was being too polite. So, so it is, it, it's right. Like it just, it, it makes no sense. You're wasting people's time. You're wasting their time. You're wasting your time. You're missing out on an amazing opportunity that should be there for your organization because wait, wait, you didn't plan. When you think about what the cost per pursuit is, and I was um, interviewing a, uh, my old account exec from 18 years ago uh, last week for my podcast. Every pursuit he's involved in is $250,000, win or lose. How dare anybody turn up unprepared, even if it only costs 500 bucks, which is not unreasonable when you consider what most people's targets are. If you're on a 1.2 million target, you're on a $4,000 a day quota. Every hour that is spent prospecting costs the company 500 bucks. Every hour that you spend traveling costs the company 500 bucks. Every hour you're in front of the prospect costs 500 bucks. Every hour you torment the rest of your sales team reading from your fiction, also known as a forecast, it costs... 500 bucks per person. How dare you not turn up prepared? It's shameful. And managers that allow that, uh, that tolerate that, that's a travesty. Why is forecasting fiction? Because most forecasts are made up of uh, hope and guesswork. There's ne next to no science to it. They don't have a clear next step. They have no idea who's there. There's no proper account coverage 
the minimum you can expect uh, in terms of a 200 person or less business. There's probably three to five influencers involved in that. If it's a thousand person company, there's at least six, seven, eight, nine, ten people involved. Most reps only cover 1.52 to 6.7, 1.67 people uh, per pursuit. So there's not enough account coverage. That's why their works are fiction. And that's why you end up with deal slippage. It's a great segue into that discussion around questions we should be asking. And one of the questions that we should be asking is, how can we improve our forecasting? Not become experts in forecasting and not become crystal ball havers who are just on the number every time. Because if you're on the number every time, then what ends up happening is you're sand, you've got a team of people who are sandbagging or you're not pushing hard enough from a growth perspective. There are a number of different pieces. But one of the questions that everybody should be asking is how can we improve in forecasting? And forecasting is about predictability, probability. It is not about clear accuracy. Accuracy from the perspective of I'm going to forecast 1.2 this year and I'm going to generate 1.2 this year. In my mind, if you're forecasting 1.2 at the beginning of the year and you generate 1.2, exactly 1.2, then you've manipulated something. You've either left opportunity on the table and you've pushed it out for next year so that you have something to help you hit your number in the following year or something else has happened. Nobody is that good. But I can tell you, you can get better at forecasting and there are ways to get better at forecasting when you think about it in the context of probabilities. So that's one of those questions we should be asking ourselves. How can we get better? One of the misses that we have is the one that you just went through. It's you've got, and I'd be, I've never gotten into a situation where I've dealt with 1.67 people. Like it's usually one or two, but in those instances where you're working with multiple people inside an organization, you're increasing the complexity. One of the cool things about multiple people inside the organization, you should also be increasing the amount of information that you have about that organization, increase the amount of exposure that you have. All of these pieces of information become brushstrokes on a painting, brushstrokes on this painting that are your deal, your opportunity. What you don't know is if I'm in a really small deal, it might be an eight by 10 painting, a little eight inch by 10 inch painting. If I'm uh, in a really big deal, it might be an eight foot by 10 inch wall. If I'm in a massive deal, it might actually be a significantly larger wall on the side of a building. But what I need to understand as a rep, as a high-performing sales rep inside an organization, is where do each of those brushstrokes fit on this painting that I'm putting together? And if I understand those things, then I can start to improve or increase the likelihood that I'm going to be able to win business. And there's just some basic questions that we should understand, like, what problem are we solving for? Who cares about that problem? Why do they care about it? What's the business impact, right? How? How have they tried to solve before? When? When do they need to solve by? And what's my project plan? My 30, 60, 90, three months, six months, nine months, three years, six year, nine year, whatever that is, whatever, what's that the scope of the project plan? And we've talked about call planning a little bit before. That's a that's a basic summary of what account planning is. And I think we just over overcomplicate it. I think we can get better at forecasting. I don't think we can will ever get perfect because we're not we're not oracles we're not magic people we don't have a we don't have a crystal ball 
Well, uh, that I, is, it works for us. I, I think this is a, a timely moment to say that Mike offers on catalystsalenos.com a number of planning templates. And if you'd like to go to catalystsale.com and on the homepage, click on templates, and right. then you can download his templates there. I also have some. So if you'd like to get in touch with me, I have some planning templates. And if you email me at mcauchi at sandler.com or marcuskauke at me.com, then I can send you a template too. So Mike, how much of this do you reckon is down to the fact that people misunderstand that sales actually is more science than art? It's, uh, is it really like, is it more science than art or is it more a combination of both art and science? Is it, I don't know if it truly is more science than art. And now, well, later stage organization where we've got a lot of data behind it. And it's actually, I'm, and I'm answering the question as I'm going through this, but I do want to turn it back to you. This, in, if we've got a lot of information, highly transactional, then there's a lot of science component, science and math that can be applied to it. If we're early stage, bringing on our first couple of customers. We're in that zero to one period or even that one to five period. So let's say we're zero to five, zero to five million in ARR, SaaS-based business. You know, we're kind of making things up as they they go along. So so the, the science associated with it is, yes, we should test. We should be able to isolate variables. We should be able to, um, determine uh, or test certain hypotheses as we go through this. However, as we're going through that, there's a creative component where we can, where we've got to be comfortable with being flexible in the way that the organization goes. So I think over time, it can be much more science or math-based, scientific or math-based. But Early on, there's a little bit more of a balance. I mean, I've got this yin and yang piece. It, I, actually, I think it's I, I think it's a balance of both. And it, it seems like the people who are more artistic are will argue that it is more art. The people who are more science oriented will argue that it's science. And then it just turns into this age old conversation around is it more art or science? And I, I think it come back to it depends. But what do, what do you think, Marcus? My view on this, well, I'm, I'm laughing because I see your systems and processes on the whiteboard behind you. I'm very systems and process oriented. So I am... That's, I what, am, that's what I mean by science. Yeah. To answer your question, I think the basic premise is that most vendor organizations start with the wrong premise. And that premise is that we have something to sell to the customer. Actually, what we should be doing is trying to understand the buyer's why and understand what it is that drives and motivates their behavior, what's got them to this point, and what are they trying to achieve. And the huge problem here is I I was just listening to a fascinating interview on Shift Happens with Chris Ottolano, and they were talking about data and RevOps and all of this kind of stuff. And it it strikes me that there are so many organizations out there that are fixated on capturing this mass of data. But actually what we need to do is we need to step back. And the question I'm starting to pose to people is, what is the minimum 
amount of technology you need in order to be able to do your job well by partnering with your customers and your prospects to deliver what they need and want. I interviewed uh, Alan Sang, who's a fabulous negotiation uh, coach. And when he talks about this vendor's mission and purpose, the mission is what the customer needs and wants, and purpose is how the customer wants it delivered. Now, this is, again, really important. You look at the research that people like Mark Schaefer and Matthew Sweezy and Karen Mangia are doing over at Salesforce and Mark with Marketing Rebellion and uh, Colin Shaw at Beyond Philosophy around customer experience. Every one of them is demonstrating that the evidence is out there, but the results are not. We are spending so much time fixating on gathering information, on automation in the sales process. And actually, when I talk about science, I talk about having a systemic approach to qualification, a systemic approach to prospecting and to managing the sale. And I take your point absolutely that we need to have an element of creativity, but that's thinking with the customer and thinking as the customer, not thinking about the customer. Uh, It's not about trying to map the customer's journey as if we were doing something to them. We're working with them in partnership. And my definition of a partner is someone who helps or people who help each other get better. Um, and, And if you're working genuinely as partners, then there is this ebb and flow, this give and take, where you're asking questions, you're diagnosing, you're challenging. They're then pushing back and helping you to improve your proposition and solve their problems more efficiently and more effectively. And part of this is driven, again, by that culture in management that we've got a number to hit. The prospect doesn't give a damn, quite frankly, my dear. Okay, what they care about is, can you help me fix my problem? How do I get out of this hole that I'm in? And I think we have to stop being selfish. We need to understand that we are there to serve. We exist, our businesses exist, because of the customer, not in spite of them. And our reps, our salespeople, our pre-salespeople need to be there helping customers solve their problems, not hit their quota. Hitting their quota is a byproduct of helping enough people solve their problems. It's insane. Just as you described that, Marcus, you, again, hit on fundamental pieces of information that for whatever reason we forget about because we try to get clever in the approach that we take with organizations. And and it kind of goes into, so you'd asked about three questions. The The other two are that they should be asking is what questions should we be asking our customers to get a better understanding of X, Y, or Z, or X, Y, or Z, depending on which side of the pond, it's a Z or a Z, and I'm working on zebras versus zebras and all of that other kind of stuff. But there's this, we should be asking ourselves as sales leaders, as sales reps, as sales professionals, as founders inside organizations, what questions should we be asking our customers to get a better understanding of who they are, what they care about, why they care about those things, how they're trying to solve those problems, what's getting in the way. Because if we can ask better questions, we can gather more information and, and get we can answers. deliver things or our solution in the context of what's important to the customer. 
and get better answers. If you want better questions, uh, better answers, ask better questions. I mean, it's That's not it. that difficult. Of, uh, for it is, it's not that difficult. Yet we want it. We feel like, hey, we're in the room, so we should go ahead and deliver our expertise. Or the one that drives me absolutely insane. And I've got the, the other question just to, I took a note on it. It's how can we simplify things? So it's how can we ask better questions should be question number two people should be asking. And then how can we simplify things? But how many people go through and when they deliver a demo, that demo looks the same, regardless of the customer that they're talking to? And it, you know, think about that. We're going to deliver the same demo to every customer. How many of those customers use different vocabulary inside their organization when talking about the problems that they're working to solve? Or you have different roles of different folks inside their organization, have a unique perspective at the way that they're solving a challenge. And that challenge could be related to time. It could be related to money. It could be related to resource. It could be, I mean, both of those are resources. There are problems that they're solving that are consistent. But the thing that's unique about the customer, and if we ask better questions, we can get to the point of figuring out from the customer's perspective, how do they describe the problem? How do they describe the problem that they're experiencing? And then as you work through those multiple points of decision, the 1.67 or the 2.34, the whatever it is, as you work through those different people that are involved in the decision-making process, you ask those questions again. Ask those questions again and get context from their perspective. And now you can paint a better picture. One of my guiding principles is understand your customer. It's a catalyst sale guiding principle. Understand your customer better than they understand themselves. And it's really hard to do that if you're working one-on-one with a customer, one-to-one, one person, one person. But in complex sales where there are multiple people who are a part of the decision-making process, you can actually understand their business better than they understand their business by going in and getting information and putting on your detective hat on or your journalist hat on, getting data, asking questions, starting to identify patterns. Because inside their organization, those points of contact have their own personal biases and agendas that they're driving forward. If you understand each of those, you can understand the need of the business more broadly. And that's why I like complex enterprise sales where we're working with large dollar amounts, multiple decision makers, high level of consensus inside organization, because those organizations run into the same problems that all of our organizations run into, which is alignment. They have a disconnect at different levels inside the organization. If I can come in as a sales professional, as a partner, as someone who is going to help them, I ask the right questions, I elevate insight, then I'm in a better position to help solve those problems. And it might take me six months to get a deal done or 12 months to get a deal done or 18 or 24 months to get a deal done. But those deals are going to be really good deals. And that's why that piece that you talked about before about building pipeline over the long run will help you continue to deliver results over an extended period of time rather than seeing this huge spike and then down and then spike and then down because you get those pipeline gaps. So the other two questions are, what questions should I be asking my customers? And then the third one is, how can I simplify the process. I know I've got a lot of stuff up here, but these are simple shapes. If you take one of them away, like a call plan, and you'll see that in the template that Marcus had mentioned, who's going to be in the room? What's their objective? What's my objective? What are our desired next steps? If I've got those four things, that shape can hold water. We can simplify these things. They don't need to be as complex as a lot of people will lead you to believe. 
Those are all fantastic points. And I'd like to build on a couple of them. One is when you're selling complex deals to multiple stakeholders, what we're seeing happen more and more frequently is that it's particularly within the IT space, it's no longer one vendor to one customer. It could be a dozen or 20 vendors just in the security stack. In the sales enablement piece, there could be a dozen vendors. In the uh, marketing automation piece, there could be six, seven, eight, nine, 10. And each of those is probably tied to partners. And when we're starting to look at these very complex ecosystems, that customers are operating in and partners are operating in, you need to have much better coordination. And you need to be asking questions of yourselves. Are we a good partner? Are we a good provider? Are we good at co-selling? Have we enabled our channel? Have we enabled our salespeople? Do we understand what assets we need in order to pursue opportunities? How are we coordinating with dispersed teams internally, within our partners, within our customer base, partner to partner? How are we communicating? Why have we not got the, uh, the level of account coverage? Are we collaborating effectively? What do we need to do to coordinate much more effectively? Have we uncovered the outcomes that the customer wants? What are the stakeholder risks? What are the problem-solving risks? What are the decision-making risks, the financial risks? Who's in the buying committee? Are we having the right people have the right conversations with the right people in the right way at the right time? And if we don't understand all of that, then what will happen is the top of the funnel activity will lead to unhygienic middle of the funnel and no activity at the bottom of the funnel. And net result of that is that, I mean, if you look at the research on this that's come out of Stanford, if you are a business that operates in bids, your actual conversion rate from opportunity to close is one in 38 and a half on average. That's a 2.6% conversion rate. When you consider the cost of pursuits, the cost of marketing, all the resources, and the missed forecast, which means that you can't invest, then you're doing nobody any favors by keeping doing what you've always done. You need to step back and you need to look in the mirror and you need to ask yourself the question, why are we doing it this way? What is it we should be doing that's better? Why don't we speak to our customers and find out what it is that they want and need? Why don't we speak to our partners and see whether or not we are doing a good job? Because I guarantee, as this depression, which it is, I mean, you know, the, the UK dropped 30% GDP in July, 30%. Now, in the depths of the 2010 recession, also known as the Great Recession, we dropped 3%. So if you are not ready to be agile and to adapt and to let go of what you thought made you successful in the past, you are toast. So, Mike, sorry for the rant, but you've got me. I think it's, it's, no, it's, it's really good. Like here's, as you were going through this, there were some basic components to each of the questions that you're asking. There were all these who, what, why, where, when, and how questions. Yet we complicate things for whatever reason. We complicate things. We think we're clever by coming up with these schemes or these approaches or whatever they are. 
if you're going to be involved in a sale process, sales process or a an opportunity where there are multiple vendors delivering a solution, working through partners. And now we've got the partner relationship, the customer relationship, the provider relationship. We're adding layers to a decision-making process, which means we're creating complexity. How do you solve complex problems? Well, you don't solve them with complex solutions. You don't solve them with more complexity. You deconstruct and simplify. If you can deconstruct and simplify, you're, you will create an opportunity to move things forward a bit quicker. And we'll go back to that quote, that is the special ops quote that we were talking about before. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. If we can simple, simplify things, we can actually help accelerate things because there's less confusion, there's less misunderstanding. The thing that I would add on top of all of this is be really, really careful about bias. Be really, really careful about your own bias. These biases where, whether it's a confirmation bias, where you believe that what you're hearing indicates that, yes, things are moving along the right track and you're reinforcing all of the things that you want. Be careful about confirmation bias. Be careful about that recency bias, the most recent thing that you've seen. Be careful about attribution bias. There's so many of these biases that get in the way and can have a negative impact on our ability to deliver solutions to our customers. So just be careful about bias. And one of the best ways to keep be careful about bias is, one, be aware of them, but then two, ask yourself questions. Is confirmation bias getting in the way here, or is it influencing me? Is there an error related to attribution? Is there whatever else? And you can do so much reading on bias. I mean, I've done a couple of blog posts around decision-making, which includes some stuff around bias, but there's so much really good information around there out there as it relates to uh, bias and impact. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Those things will help create acceleration in your deal, reduce ambiguity, reduce confusion, and help you do things better. So there's, there's my rant. I couldn't agree more. If you haven't read it yet, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. The uh, books that Dan Ariely writes are very good on bias. I'd also recommend that if you haven't listened to David McWilliams' uh, podcast, he's an economist out of Dublin, and he's done uh, a course on economics. Um, But in there, he does a couple of sessions on uh, biases and heuristics. And heuristics are shortcuts, often to idiocy, if I'm being perfectly honest, um, because what they are are ways of... Uh, trying to quickly reach a decision, but often they breach that special uh, special ops mantra, which is um, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And you know the rule is slow down to speed up. You need to take the time and get third party confirmation, which is why you need to triangulate the answers that you get. Don't just go to one or two people and fall into the trap of believing what you've been told. Get it from three, four, five other sources. Then internally, have a red team and a white team. The white team defends the opportunity. The red team tears it to pieces. And where we've implemented that in our clients, it's harder to get it through the red team than it ever is to make the sale because they are hypercritical and they're picking out holes so that when you go in, you are fully prepared and it feeds your pre-call plan. It also raises questions as to where the gaps are. And you cannot, in sales, afford to listen with happy ears. 
It's an act of flagrant stupidity to go in and make assumptions. It's an act of gross misconduct to go in unprepared. And when you consider not only the cost of pursuit, but the impact and the opportunity cost that you are wasting because you're blowing deals. You know, if seven out of eight of your uh, opportunities don't end up in a second meeting, and KPMG did that study last year, only six minutes in the hour did CXOs feel that they derived value from the conversations they were having with salespeople. Now, that means 54 minutes was spent twiddling their thumbs, thinking, when will this torment end? You don't get invited back for a second meeting, and you've got one chance to make an impression with these people. Think about that. Six minutes of value out of a 54-minute meeting. There's a reason why folks call me. And Marcus, I'm sure there's a reason why people call you. The reason why they call us is because they know that when they talk with us, they're going to leave with something better than they had when they first entered into the conversation. They're going to leave with something of value. If you deliver value to your customers, and I know this is going to sound really cliche, but if you deliver value to your customers, they will come to you and ask for help. They don't do it right out of the gate. They don't do it the first time. That first cold outreach that you have or the first meeting that you have, you've not built up trust. You've not built up rapport. You've not, they're not looking at you as someone who actually can solve problems. They're looking at you as someone who can, who is trying to sell them something likely. Over time, though, as you build these relationships, you will build, find people in your network who they, the first person they're going to call because of the value you delivered is going to be you. And they are going to be comfortable doing that because they know you're not going to give them a line of BS. You're actually going to help them solve a problem. And if you can't solve the problem, you're going to connect them to somebody else who can. So deliver that value. That is a great way to differentiate yourself from everybody else that's out there in the marketplace. We keep talking about differentiation. Here's a way to differentiate yourself. Deliver more value. Deliver more value and be more human. In the absence of value, the conversation will descend quickly into price. That's a fundamental lesson. Yes. And you need to earn their investment. And once you've earned their investment, you need to earn their loyalty. And then you need to earn their faith. And these are fundamental principles that are missed by so many salespeople. I'd posit that maybe half to 2% of salespeople really live and understand that. The rest are fixated because of scarcity because they haven't filled their pipeline. And this is partly down to fear. I I just interviewed a, a very vocal chap called Paul Mort, and he's absolutely right. There is no such thing as procrastination. There is no such thing as self-sabotage. They are decisions. You know, if you'd spend your time looking at cat videos instead of prospecting, it's because you would prefer to spend your time looking at cat videos instead of prospecting. You made that choice. And making a mistake repeatedly is a decision, a stupid one, but nonetheless, it is a decision. If you make a mistake, learn from it. Capture the lessons, because failure is, without question, your best teacher alongside your prospects. But very few salespeople, I mean, the the majority of salespeople that I know with 10, 20 years experience, in all honesty, have one year's experience multiple times over. And (laughs) it's shameful. Absolutely shameful. And if you're ever going through the process of trying to remember this, just go back to, uh, for those of you who are Rush fans, in the song free will the the one of the lines is 
even if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. So make better choices as you go through the process. Be deliberate as you go through the process. I'm a simple guy with simple education. I like this, but this stuff works. It's not coming through and having a complex list of 20 questions to qualification. Who gives a crap about your 20 questions to qualification? What problem exists in the organization? Who cares about it? Why do they care about it? How have they tried to solve it? When do they need to solve it? Let's just make those things basic and then build upon those who, what, why, where, when, and how. I think we've done so much damage as sales professionals with things like BANT, budget, authority, need, timing. Like, come on, that's all about us. It's not about the customer. You're trying to qualify people out. You're not trying to help them solve a problem. Look at yourself and ask yourself, is this thing that I'm doing good for the customer? Is it actually going to help them? Is it going to provide some level of insight? Is it going to help them get a better exposure to a problem that exists inside their organization that is unknown? Go back, you know, Secretary of Defense of the United States, a number of years back, Donald Rumsfeld had a quote out there. He said, there are no knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. Do your customers know what their problems are? If they don't know what their problems are, ask questions to help reveal those. When those problems become known, then it makes more sense to deliver a solution there rather than just pitching a solution and trying to get to something. Worry more about your customers and good things tend to happen. Just make sure you're working with the right customers. So being your ideal customer profile, good things tend to happen. Marcus, you know how to, you know how to pull my strings. I just get me on a rant. <laughs> I think we're probably bad for each other because we uh, we both triggered each other's rants. So for those of you listening, please repeat after me. Bant is bollocks, okay? Anyone who teaches you Bant, recognize them for what they are, which is completely superfluous, and get away from them as quickly as possible. Ignore anything that comes out of their mouth. Okay, so Mike, let's move on to the final topic, which is goal setting. Uh, I know that you've got a program around goal setting. So talk to me why goals are important. Goals are important because if you haven't created focus around what you're trying to accomplish, it's really hard for you to continue to move forward and execute. And, you know, there are some people who just continue to get lucky and they'll they'll continue to make progress and they are extremely fortunate. And every time they turn a corner, some opportunity delivers itself and, and they just, and they're looked at as people who things just come naturally to them or come natural to them. I would challenge you on whether or not that exists. I think a lot of those instances, people are designing those opportunities and there's the, you know, the quote out there, chance favors the prepared mind and we make our own luck. Goals are important to me because they create a high level of focus where we should be putting our attention. Once we have that focus, then we can start to say, how are we actually performing against that goal? That goal could be, hey, I would like to get more sleep in the evening. Or it could be that I'd like to blow through my number for the year. Or it would be, could be, I want to deliver a new product out in the market. There's so many different ways that you can look at goals. And there's different frameworks. There's the SMART framework. So set up SMART goals. I've got my own framework that I talk about in the reset, which is uh, the game framework, which is goals, activities, metrics, lead to execution. If you have those things, the goal, activity, and a metric, you're going to improve your ability to execute. And uh, it's just, it's, it is 
some of us are out there and we look at it with this and we say, look, I'm not goal oriented or I have a hard time achieving my goals or whatever it is. I would challenge the bias that you've created for yourself. We're all we're all goal oriented. The goal goal could be just getting to the grocery store to pick up some eggs, or waking up in the morning, or you know doing a number of different things. Um, goals are important because they they provide some direction and focus for us, and are something that we can use to measure whether or not we're actually doing the right things. I've always struggled with smart goals because they didn't create an emotional connection. I came across a lovely model called dumb goals. And dumb goals are dream-based, uplifting, method-friendly, behavior-based. And then you smarten the behaviors, which are specific, measurable, attainable, repeatable, time-bound. There are a lot of people out there who struggle with goals. And it could be a number of reasons. Like there's we mentioned one of them, which is, hey, we, we just try to do too much. We, like we have 800 different goals that we're working on at a different time, point in time, or then we, we change that goal for whatever reason midway through, or it becomes something that doesn't really make sense for a period of time. The thing that I would challenge everybody to do, in addition to walking away and saying, Bant is bollocks, is just go through and say, am I actually working on the right thing? Like, does my goal really count? Does the thing that I'm working on right now really matter? If it doesn't, let it go and just move, and move on to the next one and be comfortable, be comfortable with that. But, and we talked about it a little bit earlier with the questions that we ask in order to create this pause or this opportunity to reflect on things. Do the same thing with your goal setting and execution. Go through this process of saying, am I working toward the right goal? What if I actually accomplish it? So what if I generate you know five million in ARR this year, or we generate five million in ARR? What's the impact? What's actually going to happen with that? What happens if we don't hit that? So yeah, it's just it's a if if you've struggled with goal setting and execution, I would challenge you to simplify the way that you look at it and not make those goals so much more so much bigger or broader than they really are. And that's why I put together the program. I, I want to help folks who struggle with goal setting and execution. And I thought, I'll deliver this framework into the marketplace. It's worked for me. It's worked for people I work with. It's been refined over time. And it's really, really simple. Where can people get hold of it? Yeah, just go to the catalystsale.com site and click on courses up in the top banner. And you'll see it. It's called The Reset. And that's the goal setting and execution course. I'm not a marketer. I need to come up with better names for stuff, but (laughs) the reset is the goal setting. Actually, I think one of the most interesting lessons that I'm learning is that most marketing actually backfires. $265 billion a year was spent on advertising or digital advertising that got zero interaction last year on Google and Facebook and LinkedIn and platforms like that. And then you add up all the additional spend on things like product data sheets. And what's really interesting is customer-generated marketing. Customers talking about you, talking about your brand, because the only thing brand stands for is how much trust people place in you. And the problem is that people have let go of that and they've been fixated on the wrong end of the problem. All this um, automation and um, all this technology, I think people have been dragged down this hellhole 
Um, but that, that's subject uh, for another conversation. Tell me this, because we've hit the top of the hour. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I'm struggling with the marketing thing. So you know, most of the business that I generate comes from referrals. And it's those, that customer interaction that you're talking about, where customers talk to other potential customers. So for me, I've been spending a lot of time working on getting better on the marketing side. And, and, and this is like clarifying message. I'm really fascinated by the work that Donald Miller has done around Story Brand, which is one of the books that's out there. They had a follow-up book. He and JJ Peterson, Marketing Made Simple. I'm trying to take a design approach to this. So looking at books like The Design of Everyday Things and then bringing in Copywriter's Handbook, which is another book that's out there. So I'm struggling with the marketing side and I'm doing taking the same approach that I would on anything else. I'm trying to deconstruct the problem. Well, one, first gather information, kind of get a sense for what works, what is, what isn't, where are the patterns, what are some common things, and then deconstruct the problem and then start working my way through each of these components. But that is, that's an area that I'm struggling with. I'm, uh, I'm on the sales and marketing side. I'm really good on the one-to-one stuff, really struggle with the one-to-many stuff because the relationship stuff is so important to me. Can I save you a shitload of time and effort? I would love to save a shitload of time and effort. Okay. The question you should be asking is, what do I need to do in order to understand what it takes to get my customers talking about me more? Yep. And how do I get my customers to engage in conversations with other people about what I do? Mark Schaefer wrote a fabulous book called Marketing Rebellion, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Matthew Sweezy's book, The Context Marketing Revolution, absolutely on the money. If you speak to Rod Jefferson, who is the daddy of sales enablement, his book, uh, Sales Enablement 3.0, is just coming out later in the year. It's all about starting with the customer and the customer's expectations. Uh, If you speak to Karen Mangia at Salesforce, exactly the same thing. If you speak to Leanne Hobson, at Alinea Partners, it's all about the customer. Everybody is getting this wrong. And that's why so much money is squandered on marketing. If you want to get big budgets, can the marketing programs um, and have them focus on getting the customer's voice out there, screaming from the rooftops about you. What's really interesting about all of this research is it's having the customer, it's the customer generated content. It's them talking about and I mean, if, if you look at the inefficiency of most corporate marketing communication, you know, they get maybe 1%, and that's considered good, by the way. And whereas you get other companies, so Spotify gets a 27% conversion rate, whereas other companies get 1% to 2%. Why? Because they spend time using a freemium service They encourage people to use their product. They start to develop tailor-made solutions for the customer. And then one in four, more than one in four, buy. And they buy over time because they're not in any hurry. They play the long game. I wouldn't waste a whole heap of time trying to spend it on marketing. I've I've done that. And my experience is it's a, a depressing waste of time. I look at all the companies that I've ever dealt with 
where they've got these marketing departments spending a lot of money on trying to uh, broadcast to their audience. That's not what it's about. It's about having audience-to-audience communication. What are you doing to facilitate that? How are you getting them to speak to each other? Save yourself a load of time, effort, money, and hair loss. I mean, look at me. So, okay, tell me something. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and advise the idiot Mike, age 23. What would you whisper in his ear? Somebody asked me this the other day, and the the, uh, acronym I gave him was CTFO. And you can look up the acronym and you know, we'll keep the, keep, the, uh, keep the podcast clean. But it just, I, I just really needed to chill out back then. I was just so absolutely intense. And I thought, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I'm still a pretty intense person of just kind of <laughs> ratchet it down just a, just, just a little bit. It's all going to work out. You're going to figure this stuff out. And there's no real easy way to do it. It's not... Now, there's good process and there's good practice, but there are no shortcuts or quick fixes that are out there. And there was a time period where I thought everything... That whatever I do is the right way to do it. Because if I was doing it, it has to be the right way to do it. And if there was a better way to do it, I would already know it. And that was at 25 and probably to 30, probably even as far as 35. And now I've got a little bit more gray hair, we'll go a little, uh, a little bit more gray in the beard. But there are these periods of time early on where I just had this intensity of at all costs, blow through things, power through the challenge, figure it out really fast. Don't worry about the wreckage that's left behind. And the feedback I'd give myself or the, the advice I'd give myself is just, you know, CTFO and and chill out a little bit and because it will it will work and there's a and and it will work so much better if you breathe and get others involved and just get engaged with folks and realize that everybody else is struggling with the same thing they just don't want to talk about it and I was you know I was just I CTFO that that is the advice I'd give myself way back then and it, even the, even even though I know that hey, you know what? There were some benefits to that level of intensity and grit and fire and all of those things. It's still, I wonder if I would have been able to move through and break through things a lot faster if I would have just uh, chilled out a little bit. And today, you know, it's a little bit more, a little bit more relaxed and I still get intense, but it's definitely a little bit more relaxed than it was back then. Excellent. So what, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that's really having a profound influence on you? One of my habits is I listen to the foreword of the effective executive uh, once a month. And that is the foreword that Jim Collins, who you know, most people will know Jim Collins through Good to Great and The Flywheel. He was a big fan of Drucker. Drucker was a mentor to him. He wrote a foreword to, I think, the 50th anniversary of the effective executive. And I listen to that once a month. And I use that as a focusing exercise to... Uh, I just talked about lowering intensity to keep myself focused on the things that I'm that I'm working on. I, that book, that is fascinating. It's it's one that I just I listen to over and over again. I do this. I consume significantly more content today in Audible than I do reading, um, just because I can do that on walks and I can do that while working out and I can do it while you know other things are going on in the background. Another fascinating read that I listened to recently is Piketty's book Capital in the 21st Century. If you want to get a better understanding of how money works and 
equality in general, uh, equality from a, uh, a financial perspective. Capital in the 21st century is absolutely fascinating. Just an amazing, amazing read. And then the other one that I've read recently that I think is um, pretty powerful, and I forget the, uh, the the name of. I think it's Thinking in Bets, Annie Duke's book. So those are those along with the Donald Miller stuff that I mentioned earlier in the discussion. Those are the three that uh, really jump out to me and are the ones that I would recommend to others. So it's the Forward to the Effective Executive. It is Capital in the 21st Century by Piketty and then Thinking in Bets by uh, Annie Duke. One that I'm reading at the moment that I strongly recommend everybody reads is Thank You for Arguing by Jay Heinrichs, H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H-S. And it's all about rhetoric. And it's fascinating, the structure of language, the structure of argument, the importance of tense uh, that we use. I, I, I interviewed him last week, and it was absolutely fascinating. Um, so that's going to be coming out um, a week on Sunday. Um, I will check it out. Yeah, really fascinating. Excellent. So, Mike, thank you so much. This has been really very, very interesting, and I hope that we can do this again in the near future. I would love it. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for going a little bit long. I know we just kind of let things go there. Absolutely awesome conversation. So thanks for having me on. Likewise, I feel the same. Mike, how can people get hold of you? Best place to go is catalystsale.com. If you go to catalystsale.com, there's links to Twitter, LinkedIn. I've got a live chat that's on there that just goes right into our Slack instance. So best place to go is catalystsale.com. And that's C-A-T-A-L-Y-S-T-S-A-L-E dot com. Correct. Thank you. Excellent. Mike Simmons, thank you very much. Marcus, thanks for having me. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please get in touch at marcuskauke at me.com or M-C-A-U-C-H-I at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please put us in touch either on LinkedIn or via email. And in the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.